Hey, everybody, it is Rajiv. Now, before we start the show, I wanted to invite you to join our email list at 99pages.club. So each month, I send out two emails. No spam, I promise. One is a summary of the episodes we've released on the podcast in the past month, but the second is a what I'm reading now list. You know, I get asked for book recommendations all the time, so I will send out a monthly summary of stimulating nonfiction reads worthy of your time. I promise there'll be gems in there. That's 99pages.club to join our email list. Now, let's get to the show. Hey, everybody, welcome to the 99 Pages Podcast. I'm your host, Rajiv Srinivasan. Today, we're speaking with Mr. Gotham Makunda, host of NASDAQ's World Reimagined Podcast and the author of Indispensable, When Leaders Really Matter. Few people have researched the implications and the trivialities of leadership as much as Gotham has. The overwhelming research shows that even great leaders are often riding the momentum of their institutions while in power. But occasionally, a leader comes along that totally changes the game, like a Churchill, a Bezos, or even a Trump. So what makes a leader not just good, but impactful? Gotham has served as a professor at the Harvard Kennedy and Business Schools, and he's a contributor to Forbes magazine. He is a longtime friend of mine and one of the people I respect most in the world. I truly enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. So Gotham, I would love to get some backstory. I know uh, I don't know many people who aspire to be uh, business school professors. I think you spent about seven years at Harvard. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you there? What brought you to academia? I did. So um, I never planned on being a professor, actually, which is always surprising for someone who ended up spending so long as one. But that was never my goal. I, I was at McKinsey and then I left McKinsey to do a PhD in political science because I, there were just some ideas I really wanted to explore. And I thought, that was important and I figured, you know, I would get that and maybe, maybe write my dissertation. And I thought, so that I'd go back to the private sector or go to the government. I never even crossed my mind I'd go be a professor. But uh, pretty early in my time at grad school, I was writing a paper applying uh, ideas about disruptive innovation to the US military, to well, to militaries and how you try and use that to understand military innovation. And, uh, and a friend of mine who was working for a company Clay Christensen founded, put us together and had me go meet Clay and uh, and Clay, you know, Clay, he just passed away recently. He was a great, you know, he was a, a great scholar and a better human being, um, which is, you know, a rare, rare thing to say. And, you know, we met for that first time. And at the end of the hour, I said to him, you know, Professor Christensen, I'm still my second year of grad school. I don't really know what I'm doing. Uh, but if you have any thoughts about what I should do after grad school, I'd love to hear it. And he looks down at me and that, that's literal. Clay was six, nine. So, so <laughs> yeah, he looks down at me and he says, I think you should teach at Harvard Business School. And I went, oh, <laughs> hadn't really ever thought about that. Uh, so that was the start of the process. And I ended up joining the business school a few years later on the faculty of the leadership department and spent seven years there. Wow. That's uh, Well, first off, I mean, for anyone to just get a, a thought, like, you know what, you belong at Harvard Business School. That must have been incredibly flattering. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> for anybody, but especially if you hear that from a guy like Clay was something else. Yeah, one of the moments of my life, without a doubt. Well, congratulations on that. And you were there for, I believe, seven years. And then, uh, I'm, oh, excuse me. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. And then, uh, you know, your book, Indispensable, came out, I, I believe we said in 2012, correct? Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, it's been heavily cited. You cover government, military, private sector leaders. I mean, I, I've, I don't think I've seen a book yet that somehow covers Jamie Dimon, Thomas Jefferson, Woodrow Wilson, Abraham Lincoln. Like, it, it's just such a thorough synopsis of some of the marquee leaders of our generation and who we, you know, aspire to in our culture. Um, can you tell us what inspired the book and what you were hoping to achieve with it? So the book is the real inspiration of the book, which uh, to answer one of the questions from the chat is based on is based on my PhD dissertation. That's exactly right. Uh, the inspiration for the book was pretty simple. Like everybody, everybody, every person in the, who listens to this is at some point in their life, they've had like the classic dorm room discussion of do individuals make history or is history just about big social forces? So when we say something happens, do we actually say it's because Franklin Roosevelt made this decision at this moment in time? Or should we say, you know what, this is what the political system was saying, and this is what the international system was saying, and really anyone would have made that. It didn't really matter that it was Franklin Roosevelt, right? So that, that's, you know, do, do, do people make history or do larger social forces make history? That debate, by the way, goes all the way back to ancient Greece, right? You can read, that's when you read Plato's Republic, he's making an argument for systems. If you, when you read, uh, when you read, say, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, there's a lot there of stuff about individuals. And that dialogue goes back, right, basically to as far back as we've thought about anything. We thought about that question. And so when I was doing my PhD, right, like, I, since I didn't feel like I needed to get a job in academia, I said, hey, I can go take a swing at a big question. And so I tried to say, is it possible to figure out when do individuals matter, right? Do they ever matter? And if they do, when? And that was kind of basically an answer about uh, to, to take on this question, because when I was looking at it, what was clear to me was that leadership was the most important thing about which we knew the least, right? That we knew a lot about like micro level leadership, about like tactics, but we hadn't really engaged with this question of when is it that individuals matter in a way that I thought really answered the question. And that's what I was trying to do in this book. I mean, that is a leadership is the, one of the most important thing that we know the least about. What a provocative statement. Like, can you talk to us a little bit about your process? Like, how did you how did you even pick the leaders that you picked here? Uh, I'd be I'd be interested to hear how you you structure the solution there. So the process for me, and I would say this is pretty different from the way you know most 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 academics do their research, but it's the way I always have. Um, is a is I say it's it's twofold, right? So one is I just I I just like history. Like I love to read history. I like I'll be I'll just be constantly like my background the background news of my life is like reading history, right? So you'll read this book and that book. And I do that both because I enjoy it and because it keeps book, it keeps ideas constantly percolating in my head. And then the second thing I do is because I, you know, I am I'm the worst thing you can possibly be at academia. I'm a general, right? I'm interested in everything. Um, and so I'll like constantly be reading stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with the stuff in theory I'm supposed to be working on. So the ideas and indispensable, you know, I was I was doing my PhD in political science. So there are a lot of ideas that are drawn from political science, and there are some ideas drawn from economics which you know, makes sense, that's what political science does. But there's also a lot of ideas drawn from psychology and the core insights I would say are actually drawn from corporate finance, which you know, on its face doesn't make any sense. But what I realized was you could take those ideas and kind of look at them from a different direction and suddenly they illuminated lots of interesting things all over the world. So in Indispensable, what I was really engaging with, with is this question of uncertainty, right? So what I was saying is, most of the research on leadership, sort of the mainstream research on leadership and political science, both of the time I wrote the book and still now, basically says leaders aren't that important. And huh. that's not just political science, that's economics, that's psychology, that's management, that's all across the board. There's this basic thing that leaders, leaders don't matter that much. Um, and so what I was thinking is, you know, 
okay, all the people who wrote these 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 ideas, who came up with these ideas, they're not dumb. They're really, really the smartest people you know ever studied this stuff. But as someone who studies history and someone who's worked in the business world, that like doesn't make sense to me, right? Like it just doesn't feel right. So what's going on? And so then I try what I try to do always is I take you know if there's ideas that I don't understand or sorry not that I don't that don't make sense to me. What mm -hmm. I want to do is boil them down to what are the basic underlying assumptions that are driving these ideas, right? What do you have to believe to believe that these this idea is true? And so the there are three basic underlying ideas that drive the idea that leaders don't matter, right? It's the first one. Well, the thing really interesting thing is all three of these are things everyone here is going to agree with. Okay. So the first one is this idea that every organization has competitors, right? External competitors. So if you're the head of a company, even if you're the CEO of like, you know, incredibly powerful company like Apple or Microsoft, you don't have total freedom at setting your prices, right? Because you have competitors who will undercut you if you raise them too much. So that's a constraint. That's a constraint on your discretion as a leader. It limits your ability to make choices and to influence the outcome of the organization. And, you know, every leader has external constraints. And then same thing, suppose you're a leader of the company, but you're inside your company, you've got like budgets and cultures and politics and history, right? And, and so there are all these internal barriers to your discretion as well. So their discretion is limited by these internal constraints. Now, we all know those things are real, but we also all know that that's not the full story, right? That there's more going on. And so the, what, the, what I discovered was that the research had like an implicit third assumption. And this is the thing that really does most of the work. And that implicit third assumption was this idea that the leaders for or organizations, you know, the ones that we really cared about are not chosen randomly. They're chosen through a process. So if you think like the CEO of, McKin of Goldman Sachs or the managing director of McKinsey or, you know, the, up until recently, the CEO of GE, these like, or Walmart, these like big iconic companies that have been around for forever, right? Um, you don't get that job from the outside. You get that job by working your way up the ranks and getting evaluated over time and get, letting the organization learn everything about you and slowly promote you into the top role. And in fact, what we see is these long-lived companies, these ones that have been around for forever, they are always like this. They just don't do outsiders. Like there's no such thing as like the outsider managing partner at McKinsey or Goldman. Like it'll just never happen, right? Uh, and GE only did that when they were desperate. Right? So it's just <laughs> as a general rule, this is not something that happens very often for this type of company. And so what does that mean, right? It means that by the time you get up to the final level, by the time you're one of the like final three or four people for the CEO slot, you've spent 20 plus years inside this company and it knows everything there is to know about you. It knows exactly who you are. And so it's gonna pick you with a pretty good idea of what you will do once you get the top job. And so what that means is it doesn't really matter who they pick. Because whoever they pick is going to do what the, the is going to do what the system wants them is picking them to do, and if they don't pick that person, they'll pick someone else who's going to do roughly the same things, right? So okay. for these sorts of organizations, I think it actually is true that the particular identity of the leader doesn't matter that much at all. But the trick, of course, as with a lot of things in social science, is it's true except when it isn't, <laughs> right? and it's when it isn't that you start to get really interesting things happening. Because if you get a leader who isn't, hasn't been so, so thoroughly evaluated, what I call filtered, right? Who hasn't been filtered so thoroughly by the system so that everybody, so that the system knows exactly who they are, you might get someone who hasn't been fully evaluated. Someone who could because of that, could conceivably be very, very different from all the other people who could have gotten the job. 
And if they're very, very different from anyone else who could have gotten the job, then they could do things that are very, very different from all the other people who could have gotten the job. And when they do these things, right, that's when things get really interesting. Because if you, again, drawing from corporate finance again, what do we know about decisions that you, where you do something that no one else would have done that? Think about like, what do we know about if you buy the stock of a company that's about to go, that you, everybody thinks is about to go into bankruptcy, right? Like either it's going to be, it's going to turn around and it's going to be brilliant and everybody's going to go, wow, that person's a genius, or it's going to be a disaster, right? And it's going right. to go, it's going to fail. It's never going to be in the middle. So it's these unfiltered leaders, these leaders who do things that no one else would do, who are likely to have the highest impact. Right, they're going to be the people who do things that do things that are unique to them, and because they have this impact, they're going to have they're going to be either really really great or they're going to be really awful. They're very rarely going to be boring. And so Super. that was right. So that was what really got me. As I said, this isn't just a question about when leaders matter. This is a question about when is it that you get the very best and the very worst leaders. Right, that's what we really care about. Is how do you know when you get someone who's going to be great or awful? And this is start a way to answer that question. You know, Gotham. What's coming to mind is, uh, and I hope you don't mind. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick on GE here, sure, sure. Because so much of the, this is, I guess, it's clear in hindsight, right? Mm -hmm. But like when GE went from Jack Welch, yeah. stocks doing well, companies doing well, uh, then Jeff Immelt, 9/11 happens, and yeah. I believe uh, there was a statement like at the same time, GE had insured both the planes that crashed in. To the buildings and the buildings and themselves. The buildings like themselves. this, right? This was a very horrific time for this company. And then they went to John Flannery. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it seemed like, you know, I mean, they were on a, a, a problematic decline before, but then it seemed like things exploded. Yeah. So I guess the real question I have is like in hindsight, it's one thing to look back and say, oh, this was a time where a Winston Churchill, for example, was absolutely the right guy, you know, coming in from the outside, uh, not a part of the institution. But is there a way to sense that your institution needs that outside help in the moment? Like what should the GE board, what should they have been thinking so uh, think, when evaluating ML's successor? You know, I think there is a great book to be written about GE in which GE sort of stands in for the fall of like American enterprise. Right, like where like the decline of like American business can be can be like understood through the lens of GE, right? So when Jack Welch took over GE, GE was the world's greatest manufacturing company. And by the time Jack was done, GE was basically a hedge fund that happened to own some factories. Right. And if you understand where Jack, you know, the incredible stock performance of GE under Jack Welch, it's all driven by GE finance, right? It's all driven by GE Capital. Like every like the, the, you you cannot understand the performance of GE without understanding the GE capital, but but when you do that right, you're you're making your money by playing by playing games with numbers. You're not making your money by building stuff, right? Which mm -hmm. is what a great industrial company does. And so, in the case, particular case of GE, what seems great, and again, I haven't like I haven't. This is just a surface level study of GE, but what it looks to me like what happened, very similar by the way to what happened to AIG, is. GE Capital was monetizing GE's AAA credit rating, right? So GE has a AAA credit rating because it is the, like at the time, maybe the most iconic American company. You cannot imagine GE defaulting. Like the idea is inconceivable. So it has a AAA, right? And so then they say, okay, well, if you have a AAA, we have cheaper funding than anybody except the government, which means we can make deals that no one else can do because we're not paying interest in the way that, other, that every other company, almost every other company in the world is. So you can make money. You can absolutely monetize your AAA. Um, the problem, of course, is that every time you do that, you are you're assuming risk, right? 
So when you monetize your AAA, you are by definition no longer worthy of being a AAA company because a AAA company is supposed to be basically risk-free. Right. Um, right. So if you were to look at, at GE, I would say the simpler argument as to what's happened is GE, GE lost its ability to perform well right, as a great industrial company because what it was focused on was playing games with numbers. Um, and so Imel, I, I mean, Imel's at least public stance was that he was trying to reverse that, right? He wanted to shrink back GE Capital. He wanted to move them back into manufacturing. I think that was a brave gesture on his part, but it clearly wasn't executed well, right? And I think it would have been insanely hard to execute because it's a lot easier to make money by playing games with numbers than it is to make money by actually being great at building things, right? Like like where the, where, where the, metal, where the rubber hits the road is not, so often not as a metaphor. That's hard. Right, you actually have to do that really, really well. You're not just being, you're, you're not just playing, you know, essentially gambling and hoping that you get lucky or taking advantage of the fact that you have an, uh, you have a financial position that no one else has, which mm -hmm. was earned not by your financial excellence but by your manufacturing excellence. Right, that's what made gave GE the AAA in the first place. Fascinating. Um, yeah. And so you could say, you know, if you this is some of my other research on on financialization and the decline of sort of, you know, and problems in the American economy is actually drives from that set of ideas where you look and you see all throughout the American economy, you see more and more stuff, more and more energy, more and more profits being driven by the financial sector and less and less being driven by the by the real economy. But the, the purpose of the financial sector is to enable the real economy. It's not the other way around, right? <laughs> like, so you literally have the tail wagging the dog in the United States right now. Uh, and that is, by the way, exactly what happened in the United States leading up to the Great Depression. It, the numbers look exactly the same. They are not there. You literally cannot tell them apart. And then we got the great financial crisis. But when for for the when the Great Depression happened, what the United States was did was definancialize its economy. It passed a bunch of laws which made the financial sector boring and safe and simple and easy, and it allowed the actual genius of capitalism to go to work doing what capitalism is supposed to do, creating wealth instead of just playing games with not right instead of just playing games with numbers. Uh, John Maynard Keynes said that when the business of allocating capital is done like a casino, it will not be done well right like, like like casino capitalism is a disaster and that is and unfortunately i would say the mistake we made after 2008 is we didn't do that we didn't definancialize the economy we allowed it to we, we basically bailed out the financial sector we put some restrictions on it most of those have been basically loosened by uh, eliminated by the trump administration and we just let things go on essentially we we allowed uh, you know people who had essentially destroyed the global economy you know and the way we punished them was we gave them lots of money <laughs> um, right. Um, like, you know, if you're not angry about that, you're not paying attention. And you could absolutely look at GE and what happened to GE and say, this is just, you know, the leading edge of the spear on that larger phenomenon. And, you know, when you ask me, why is it then that what happened is, well, GE's CEOs were doing exactly what financial pressures, right? The pressures exerted by Wall Street were telling them to do. They weren't doing anything special. Right. This was the easy way to make money. So they decided to do it. And they've just fall, they follow the tie that everybody else did. And it would have taken a really unique figure, a Steve Jobs type, right? Someone who wasn't interested in that kind of, or Jeff Bezos is another good example of that. Someone who wasn't interested in responding to those types of pressures to cut against that current. Mm -hmm. And it's unlikely that GE would ever have brought someone like that to the CEO role because that's not what they did. Fascinating. So we actually had, a, 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 I think, a compelling question in the chat come through. Uh, does the GE example, and this is from Judy Bellow, uh, does the GE example apply to the U.S. pharmaceutical industry as well? More companies used to do their own R&D inside, and then Pfizer, and, and actually quite a few companies, pioneered yeah. in just buying little companies. Uh, and, and I think it's kind of interesting, right, because I think what we're seeing is that whereas before 
the big manufacturing companies would invest in their own internal R&D. And that's effectively what Wall Street was subsidizing or investing yeah. in. But now what we see is kind of this emergence of like private sec- uh, 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 privately funded, small venture capital led uh, rounds that are really uh, where the innovation hubs are today. You know, obviously Silicon, Silicon Valley, where you're at in Massachusetts, et cetera. And uh, so are, is, is the financial engineering here really broken or has it simply just migrated? Has the call for leadership really in these markets really just gone down market? So I think it's profoundly broken. Um, you know, like it is true that you get innovation from the small companies with the, with the venture capital back, right? That's great. And we need that. But we also need innovation from big companies, right? We forget that, right? Bell, you know, basically the entire modern internet economy is was founded through research done at Bell Labs, which was the biggest, you know, part of AT&T, the biggest of big companies. Um, these big companies actually have a lot of ability to do the, to do the sort of valuable innovation if they choose to do it. And absolutely in the pharmaceutical sector, right? You saw, by the way, it's not just the pharmaceutical, Cisco famously was basically their, their R&D strategy was M&A. But yeah, absolutely, Pfizer in particular. I remember, I mean, back the last time I looked at the numbers, Pfizer was spending $8 billion a year in R&D. And it was genuinely shocking how little they got out of it, right? Like, like um, it was it was just sort of astonishing when you really look, ran the numbers because all of their drug, blockbuster drugs were come through, came through acquisitions, most famously Lipitor, which came from their acquisition of Warner Lambert. Um, I know I have seen numbers that suggest that in the entire wave of, so as a general rule, almost all M&A destroys value. Right, so like n- about ninety percent of mergers and acquisitions destroy value, and in fact, uh, this is this is dated. This was like ten years ago. It may no longer be true, but way back in the day, ten years ago, the best assessment was that the only significant merger that had created economic value in the you know the last generation of the pharmaceutical company was the Pfizer purchase of Warner Lambert, where what they were really buying was Lipitor. Right, they bought the entire right. company just to get their hands on Lipitor, and they turned Lipitor into the world's most pow- most valuable consumer product. Um, but every what we, when you study this, every time you buy a company and you combine the research labs, like research is not like um, you know research is not like well financial engineering. You need long continuity and stability to make this to make this work. Every time you interrupt things, your research productivity goes down to zero. So what you saw is every time these companies would do this and buy and combine their research staffs and lay off thirty percent of people, things like that, their research productivity would go through the floor. Right. And so I absolutely think you see in the financial sector is a very good uh, sorry in the pharmaceutical sector is a very good example where the real the real like innovative uh, engines that drive that used to drive the American economy have been sabotaged by these short-term financial pressures. It's not surprising that right then again to go back to Amazon, right? Jeff Bezos publishes his shareholder letter every year. Uh, the the his, his his initial letter to shareholders, the one he wrote for the first time they went public, right? Yeah. He republishes that in their annual report every year and what he says is, you know, I am running this company for the long term and if you don't like that, go invest with someone else. Right? Is that blunt? And of course, wow. you you know you could not have done better in the last few years than we're investing with Jeff Bezos, because in working you know it is in fact striking that this shareholder driven capitalism is is self destructive. The more American companies have focused on maximizing shareholder returns, the worse edit they've got. Boom! What a uh, <laughs> shareholder driven investor cap in American capitalism. Short term, yeah. Short, short, short term, term, yes. Um, we had another question come in, and I think it's actually a great segue to something I, I would love for you to chat about. Is uh, uh, from Neil Newman. I'd love to read that fall of the American corporate empire book through the lens of GE, Professor. What about your next book? Uh, you know, what big questions are you asking now for for the next publication? I know you got some stuff in the works. We'd love to give you a chance to to talk about that. Yeah, so the book I just fin- I finished a little while ago that's in the hands of my press right now 
is basically a product of some surprising things that happened after I wrote the first book. So the first book is about, you know, let's set this up. Let's give you a summary of what's going on in the first book. The first book is about what we say, like outsider leaders, right? Leaders who come at, who leaders who come in from the outside of the organization or, you know, who are not fully evaluated, who are not like, you know, and often some people who take power over the opposition of organizational elites, right? And somehow manage to gain control of the organization, whether it's a company or a country, you can think of them both as just different types of organizations and then do things that no one else would do. So, you know, in the, as we said, going into election season in the lens of the modern political environment, this sounds really familiar, right? Like this sounds a lot yeah. like Trump. So in and of itself, you that like the book you could say was sort of like presaging the 2016 election in a way I could not possibly have predicted when I published it in 2012. Um, it actually gets weirder than that. So my big prediction for these leaders who do either really, really well or really, really poorly, right, is that is, is the, that is, that, that is, you know, if you're looking at this subject, say you're a board of directors and I come to you and you say, well, you know, so I'm going to be great or awful, but you don't know which, like, that's not like the most helpful advice I could possibly give them. Right. Um, so as I was working on the book, I was trying to figure out what can I do to tell you things that would indicate if this person is going to be great or awful. Now it's important to say that probably the most important single factor is luck, right? Like <laughs> luck counts. Right, you, uh, Hyman Rickover, the great, uh, sort of the father of the U.S. nuclear navy, used to, used to say that luck is better than skill. I can't use you if you're not lucky. Um, so right, so luck counts. But what I said was, I can come up with a few things that indicate that someone is really likely to be a disaster. And the reason I can do that is because they're all what I call they're all product of what I call false signals. Um, that false signals are this idea that they are things that makes someone look more capable than they actually are, right? So things that if you look at them, someone superficially, you look at that and they're impressive. But if you dive down deep, you would realize, eh, not so much. But these unfiltered leaders, the outside, these outsiders, you never get the chance to do that deep dive. You never get a chance to look at them closely and look past the false signal and see the reality. So I said, and again, remember, this book was published in 2012. I was not thinking about, you know, anything in current politics when I said that. <laughs> but, um, but these were the four characteristics I identified as false signals where any one of these four is, if you have a candidate who has any one of these four, you should say, this is a big problem and you don't want to go with this person. And so the first one I said was psychological and personality disorders. And the reason I mentioned these, these psychological personality disorders is if you think of uh, the, the examples I used were narcissism and psychopathy. Because the thing about narcissists is when you narcissists think they are the most impressive person on earth and their belief in that is so strong that when you first meet them, you do too. So if you get a bunch of people in a room who don't know each other and you have them vote on the leader, they'll quite often they'll vote, they'll, they'll vote for the narcissist because the mm -hmm. narcissist seems really impressive. Now, over time, narcissistic personalities do not wear well. And you, you encounter that and you realize that the narcissistic shell is hiding someone who's actually deeply incompetent. And narcissistic leaders in general are catastrophic failures, but they look really impressive. And in fact, this, this basic trade-off of short-term positive impressions, but long-term costs is a trait across a large number of different psychological and personality disorders. So I said, okay, so someone with a, with, who has narcissism or, psych, or psychopathy, these sort of personality disorders, that's a really bad sign. Right. So the second one I said was, um, the second one was like managerial, an extremely risk-prone managerial style, right? So because you think there are lots of people, when we look at the leader, what we, it's easy to forget is there were a thousand other people who were trying to get that job, 
right? There were a thousand other people trying to get that job. And suppose they were all taking crazy gambles and 999 of them blew up, but one person got a million to one returns. Right. Right. So that doesn't make that person brilliant. It makes them lucky. But they look brilliant because we only see the winner. We don't see all the losers. Right. If someone went, plays Russian roulette 100 times and win 100 times, it doesn't make them great. It just makes them lucky. It make, they just look like they have a magical talent at winning Russian roulette. So, <laughs> so if you have someone who has like an extremely risk prone managerial style, that's a really that like like that, that that that's something you want you, you want to worry about. And then the third thing I said was you have someone who has like extremely out of the mainstream or highly simplistic ideologies. Because you could kind of say, right, that um, that to every complicated problem, there is a solution that is simple, easy, and wrong. So it's easy to propose, oh, here's the obvious answer to this. And, you know, and this is when, you know, all the, everybody who hasn't done it is an idiot, but I'm going to do it and we should do that. Right. So, but in fact, people who understand the problem are like, mm, you know, that doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right. So <laughs> someone who's proposing like, you know, really simple solution out of the mainstream solutions to complex problems. That's a really warning. That's, that's a warning sign. Right. And the last one of those I said is, is unearned advantages. So suppose someone comes from a rich and powerful family and amasses an incredibly impressive resume, right? So normally that really impressive resume would tell us that this person is a really impressive person because we think of experience as, a, we always talk about what did you learn from experience, right? We talk about experience, when we say, what did you learn from experience? What we're imagining is we're thinking about experiences as a developmental process. We're saying, well, how did you develop during your experience to become better able at answering the challenges of the future? Now, experience is a developmental process, right? You should learn from experience. I, I encourage people to learn from experience. But experience is also a revelatory process, right? Experience also allows other people who are watching you to learn about you and to learn about what you're capable of doing. That's what experience does, right? So experience is both a developmental and, and a revelatory process. But if you come from a rich and powerful family, one that enables you to get these impressive jobs and then uses this influence to make sure that you get promoted after the impressive job, whether or not you actually did a good job, then the revelatory capabilities of, of experience are stripped away. And so someone who has unearned advantages like inherited wealth can seem to for superficial examination much more impressive than they actually are. So in the first book, again, written you know, more, than, you know, more than four years before 2016 and published in 2012, I said that you should be really, really concerned about people who are narcissistic, who have out of the mainstream ideologies, who are extremely risk prone managerial style and who have inherited wealth. Um, so how did, I'm sorry, Gautam, I gotta ask, cause I, I, having read Indispensable, I'm curious, how does this mesh with a very important theory from your book, leader filtration? So that's uh, theory. Right. So, yeah. so those are the four characteristics that let someone bypass filtration. So oh, if, if you have okay. an unfiltered yeah. leader who has one of these four characteristics, right? Then you have someone who's passed through filtration, but that may not actually, you know, and usually they haven't had, they haven't been filtered at all anyways, right? Because they're an outsider or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you should say, well, you know, uh, people who are unfiltered, some of them are greater, some of them are awful. And you can't tell in advance for sure which one it'll be. But this is a person who the odds for awful are really, really high, right? This is someone who you're like, mm, I would not take a risk on this person. And of course, four years later, we elect someone who, you know, my editors joked with me when he, when, when Trump won, he said, do you think people understood that we didn't mean this as a checklist? <laughs> um, right? Like this seems like, a, so, so like I, I, you know, I would do, I do not call, you know, so the, the Washington Post ran a column a few days after the election where they, they said something like the book read like it was written with a time machine. Now I do not own a time machine, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is genuinely weird. And so my second book was sort of answering, was based on that, was saying, okay, given that fact, can we create an objective framework? Not a subjective, you know, my guy is in my party, so I like the person, but an objective framework based on history, building on both my ideas and other research from political science and from management that allows us to evaluate presidential candidates and say, does this person have a high likelihood of succeeding if we actually put them in the White House? Right? I'm not asking if they can win the election. That's not what I'm good at. What I'm asking is if they're in the if if, if they do win the election, will they do a good job? And so my second book, which is called Picking Presidents, is actually about that idea and trying to understand and trying to lay out a framework that anyone can use based on publicly available data that allows you to objectively evaluate presidential candidates. Super interesting. Actually, it's a a great segue to, you know, something I really wanted to ask you about. You know, we're reading why we're polarized by Ezra Klein in our next month. Election season's coming up. And, you know, I'd be interested to hear uh, from your take. And, and by the way, for anyone watching with your questions coming into the chat, keep them coming. We're going to turn to these right next. But I really would love to hear, like, when you look at our polarized nation right now, do you see a lack of leadership from just the top of society? Or do you think it's primarily driven by a degree of poor, what I like to call poor followership? right? Like we live in a democracy. We are investors in the stock market. We choose as individual investors where we keep our money and who manages it, right? Like to what extent is this a problem from like leadership from the top versus, I don't know, a sense of vulnerability, insecurity, whatever you call it from the bottom that uh, that, that is fueling these let's say short-term decisions, I, I guess is the way to call it. Like, yeah, how, how do you, how do you uh, divide, you know, the responsibility of a leader versus effectively the, the responsibility of a citizenry? So I would put almost all of the blame on, on, on American elites, on the leadership, right? So the first thing is elite, you know, people who are politically active, the American elites are far more polarized than most Americans, right? So, so the sort of, the, the sort of ideologically coherent views that political elites have where, you know, where everything goes together, um, you know, where like, so if, so if, if, if you are someone who's really active in politics and I tell you, and you tell me one of your views, you, I can basically tell you all of your views, right? Like if you're pro-choice, you also believe in raising taxes on the rich and, you know, and you think that we should increase social welfare spending and probably cut defense spending, right? Now, those, those beliefs don't logically go together, right? There's no particular reason that being pro-choice dictates that you also believe in raising taxes on the rich. <laughs> but yeah. but if you're if you're a political elite, right? If you're like someone who's active in politics, then it's almost a certainty that all those views go together. Now, when you look at most Americans, in particular, when you look at like independents, you know, people who are not, and and you know, the, a plurality of Americans are independents, their views are not ideologically coherent, right? They, they, like it's not that they, we think that the American political spectrum is like Republicans and Democrats and moderates. Mm-hmm. That's not actually what it looks like. What you've got is like Republicans and Democrats and then people who are neither and they don't have moderate views. What they have is an unrelated correlation of extreme views, right? That aren't like logically consistent. Interesting. Okay. Can, can, can kind of end up in one place. Or the other. Now it's true. Most independents are kind of pretty closely tied to a party. And so they almost all, you know, most independents who say they're independent actually almost always vote for the same party. And you know, how independent are they really? But it's nonetheless true that basically the less active you are in politics, the less your views are sort of into this, this sort of framework that makes sense. So the biggest divide in politics is not between, uh, you know, like Republicans and Democrats. 
is between people who pay attention to politics and people who don't. Right. Very and that is actually a much larger gap between the two. So that's so when you talk about polarization, the first thing I'd say is it's almost all driven by elites. Right. Elites are just much more polarized than the average American. The second thing I'd say is that much of the polarization is driven by a set of choices made by elites that have created that polarization and made it much worse. So the first thing I say is when we say polarization, we have to make sure that we understand that polarization is asymmetric. Right. Democrats have moved somewhat to the left and Republicans have moved a great deal to the right. Right. So the polarization is asymmetric. And that is a product of a set of choices by political leaders, primarily, I have to say, by Republican political leaders to drive the political discourse in this way. Whether it's, you know, the sort of pervasive influence of Fox News, we, we you know, political scientists is somewhat bitter joke among political scientists that we basically only know one thing that can consistently change the views of uh, voters, and that is getting them to watch Fox News. That's really like, like Fox News is incredibly powerful. It has swung it has swung votes towards Republicans. I'm trying to remember the data we have. Something like 4%, which is a lot. Like 4% is huge, right? 4% is yeah. a tie in a landslide. So, right. So that's so, so, you know, so one is the Fox, the Fox News dynamic. The second is, um, you know, the second is sort of the, the dynamic of Republican leaders who have done a pretty consistent path where they use political appeals that are, you know, essentially cultural and racial to drive, to, to, to get votes. Right. So they, you know, the Donald Trump was the purest form of this, but we saw a Republican candidacy after Republican candidacy done this way. But when they were in office, what they delivered on was tax cuts for the for the wealthy. Right. The only significant legislative achievement of four years in the of four years of Donald Trump is a major tax cut for the rich. Now, this is not an accident. Right. What you see is that when when it comes down to it, what you get is delivery for the donor class. So the average Republican voter wants to raise taxes on the wealthy. Right? People forget this. It's not that the average American wants to raise taxes on the wealthy. The average American absolutely wants to raise taxes on the wealthy. What I'm saying is the average Republican wants to raise taxes on the wealthy. But we don't do it because that's not who the leaders of one party, who because of you know various systemic weirdness in the American system, are basically running the government, want to do. So we have to say when we have this asymmetric polarization, this polarization, it is asymmetric and it is driven by a set of choices on the part of political elites that are particularly driven, right? Like particularly and profoundly driven by the needs of serving the wealthy in the United States, right? So, so like, so do, is it, is it incumbent upon us as citizens to do better? Absolutely it is. Democracy is hard, right? Democracy is not the easy way. Democracy is the hard way. We as citizens have to do what we have to do. More, you know, more of us, particularly more, more of us, uh, more people who are elites from top, you know, from top schools and other to do what you did, Raji, even join the military, right? It is, it is you know, it is genuinely heartbreaking that so that so few people who go to the, like top schools ever do, do ever make the same the choice that you made but even beyond that right we need to be we need to show up and be ready to do this to, you know be ready to do the hard work of democracy whether it's reaching you know reaching out to our fellow citizens you know educating ourselves on our votes thinking through what it actually takes you know voting not just for ourselves but for the country as a whole so yeah there's hard work on followership but if i had to pick the problem the problem is not you know the average the average american has views you know, that they may or not be enormously informed, but they, I would say they're not that far. Like if you look at inequality, for example, the average American thinks that the, the inequality of the United States is basically the inequality of Sweden. Like the average American vastly understates how unequal the United States is. Wow. They yeah. want the United States to be considerably more equal than it is, than, than not just than it is, than they think it is. So they say, you know, we're, their, their image of how unequal we are is, is way low. And their preferred state of how unequal the United States would be is much lower than their way low imageable. 
right? So Americans, so 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 the where Americans have have their view of, of of what how they want politics to be is I think not nearly as polarized as our politics makes it seem. The issue is our political elites are responding to incentives where they basically do not have to care what the what. Uh, well, we're not all of our political elites, but a big fraction of our political elites are spending with centers, but they basically do not have to care what people actually want. Super helpful. Yeah. That's and, and, really interesting. Yeah. Right. Like I said, this is a fight again with a financial crisis. If you watched what happened in the financial crisis and you are not angry, you were not paying attention. Right. Yeah. Uh, I want to bring in a few of the comments coming in from the chat. Some really interesting uh, things being said here. Uh, a catastrophe, uh, poor and uncritical followership combined with leaders who bypass filtration from uh, Judy Bell. I think that's incredibly wise. Uh, Al Chase brings up uh, a Haitian friend of mine was commenting on the dire chronic status of Haiti. He said, it is our own fault. People end up with the government leaders they deserve. If we want a better Haiti, we need to be better citizens which I think is pretty interesting. Um, and then uh, we, I did see uh, two questions on mergers and acquisitions and uh, when they destroy value and doesn't matter if they're startups versus established companies. Uh, and so for Gita and Chelsea, we'll go back to that in just a second. I, I wanna stay a little bit focused on this, uh, on this train if that's okay. Because what you've described now, both in terms of the financial crisis and in terms of let's call it our, our political discourse issues, um, the problem is, the elites. Okay, great. Understood. But the power also rests with the elites. Yeah. So what is the fix? What is the solve? If uh, the elites truly are the problem and there is a lot of vested interests on both sides of the aisle of effectively continuing uh, the, the status quo, uh, like how do we, how do we start coming together as a country again? How do we, yeah. What, what, where would you advise us to start? I think we need we need to elect people who who are committed, you know, to use their precious political capital. This is the problem, right? Is is uh, when you're elected, you don't have that there aren't that many things you can do. So everything you're always making choices. Every time you choose to do something, you're choosing not to do something else. Um, and I would say we need to elect people who use that some of their precious political capital to make basic, substantive reforms in the processes of the American government. So the American government, when it was created, right when the Constitution was what first came into effect in 1789, was was you know honestly it was it was a miracle, right? It wasn't perfect. Obviously, there were many flaws, slavery to the exclusion of women, like to do to what happened in Native American. Like nobody's saying the American government was perfect, but it was extraordinary. The the government that was most similar to what the founding, what the framers of the Constitution created, was that of the Roman Republic, which had fallen almost 2,000 years earlier, right? That is profound and extraordinary. And what they did was an incredible leap forward. But they themselves said that it would be like the, for the frame, the first people who wrote the constitution said that it would be the height of foolishness to think that their system was perfect and should never be changed, right? And so since then, the United States government has been incredibly successful, right? It went from 13, colony, 13 colonies hanging onto the edge of the Atlantic Ocean you know, barely able to stand to stand together to the wealthiest, most powerful society in human history. And it did that in about 200 years, right? That is a level of success for a government that is, it's like mind boggling. You know, there's the, 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 the right, when you look, think about the grand sweep of history, both the meteoric rise of the United States and its prolonged length of time at the top, essentially have no parallel, right? One way to think about it is American soldiers have been on the Rhine for longer than the Roman legions ever were. Oof. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and the other way to think about that is the United States got right since the, when the United States government was founded. Right. 
Um, Japan was ruled by a shogun. Uh, France by a king. Um, you know, like you can just sort of go through well, you know, all the different, you know, uh, Russia by a czar, China by an emperor. None of those offices exist anymore. Yeah. Right. None of those people. None of those offices exist anymore. Like they, they, they don't mean anything. Right. The the the, the exist, but the American president's still hanging on. The U.S. government. You know, we, we think of the United States as a young country, which it is, but you know, it's a young country with an old government. The United States government is not is not older than the governments of say Germany, France, Spain, and Italy. It's older than all of them combined. So over that span of time, you get some level of you know sclerosis of, of a government that isn't quite suited to modern challenges. And it's, it's perfectly possible to make reforms that would vastly improve that within the bounds of the Constitution. We don't need to amend the Constitution to solve these problems. We, I mean, there are certainly amendments I might suggest, but we could make things a lot better a lot more easily. For example, right, right now, the House of Representatives is fixed at 435 members, right? So... Um, it has been fixed at that for almost a century. What that means is congressional districts get larger and larger and larger. And no matter how hard you work, at this point, if you are a member of Congress, it is functionally impossible to meet enough members of your district that you can get elected through retail politics, which means you got to take to the air. You got to go on TV, which means you got to raise money. If you got to raise money, it means you're in hock to the donors because the people, because you got to raise the money at $2,000 a chunk because it's not exactly efficient to do it $10 at a time, mm -hmm. right? So if you are a member of Congress, and we've done studies on, on where we look at how members of Congress spend their time, right? They don't spend their time legislating. They don't spend their time meeting representatives. And by the way, like one of my one of my really good friends, Seth Moulton is a member oh, yeah. of Congress. You know, he Seth works harder than almost anyone I know, right? Seth spends more time working at his job than almost anyone I know. Like senior corporate execs who talk about lazy politicians would die if they tried to keep up with Seth, working, <laughs> right? But if you are a member, uh, if you are a, a, a if you are a member of Congress, right? However much you want to work, you know, and you you want to meet con your constituents, and you do. However much you want time, you want to spend legislating and learning about issues, and you do. What you really spend your time doing is you're on the phone calling rich people and asking them for donations. That's what you do, right? And so that limitation in the size, and so that so the, the that fixed size of the House of Representatives has other issues as well, right? It means because the number of electoral votes that a state gets is the combination of the house of number of house people in the house plus two senators. It means that as the population of states becomes more and more you know dissimilar, right? When the founding fathers created the Constitution, when they created the Senate, the biggest state was something like eight times the population of the smallest state. Now I think California is more like eighty times the size of the smallest state. Literally, yeah. Right? Wow. So. The, so the bias towards the bias towards small states that the founding fathers created was vastly smaller than the one that we have now. Now here's the thing: the size of the House of Representatives is not in the Constitution. The size of the House is just is by legislation. So one thing you could do, for example, is pass a law, not a constitutional amendment, just a law that doubles or triples the size of the House of Representatives. Suddenly, that means that at the presidential level, the bias towards small states is much, much less powerful. And at the congressional level, it means that congressional districts are small enough that if you choose to, you can actually go and run for office by going out and shaking hands, which means that you don't need donors nearly as much, which means you are way less obligated to them, which means you're way more obligated to actually taking care of the, of the people in your district, not the rich people who can write checks on your behalf, right? So you could do that. We can mandate 
we can mandate nonpartisan redistricting. We could say that if you're a state and you want federal money, you're going to draw your districts and through, you're going to draw your districts in such a way that it's not 90% Republican and or 90% Democratic. But in that case, you you'd you'd force members of Congress or state legislators or everybody right to answer to the middle instead of answering to the most extreme members of their own party. Right? There are lots of things we could do to make the U.S. government work better. Now, you know, there's lots of evidence that says, for example, that redistricting does not shift the partisan balance. But very, very smart political scientists demonstrated that. That's true. But what it does do is change the incentives, right? It, you may, you, you, it, what it changes is, what it changes is, it changes the, the number of Republicans and Democrats could stay the same, but the way those Republicans and Democrats behave could be very, very different because they're answering to a different set of voters. And, the, and at the end of the day, as you know, if anything, it's that most career politicians only care about getting reelected. <laughs> so that, that's really interesting is, is when you when you increase the number of representatives. I mean, it, it, what's interesting is that especially if you did it proportionally to the current yeah. makeup. I mean, right now, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the government is, you know, uh, primarily Republican led. But if you did it proportionally, no one should theoretically have a, an issue with it. Right. Yeah. You're just okay. increasing. Yeah. You're not really changing a balance of power. You're just no, adding right. more seats. Yeah. yeah. That, that's, that's such a fascinating and yet, so is there any precedent for that where uh, yeah. that's actually occurred? Like, yeah, I'd love to hear how this works. we fixed the size of the House about a century ago, the House grew all the time, right? The, the purpose of the House was it was supposed to be representatives who were in close touch with the people. Right. right? When you're, when, you know, what's the, the average district are 435 members of Congress and 330 million Americans, right? So mm-hmm. the, average, the average district has almost a million people. I don't care how extroverted you are, you can't get to know a million people. Right. So, right. so, so we we have we have destroyed the purpose of the house in the first place by making these districts so large. Super interesting. What are your thoughts on? I mean, I I, I also so at the end of the day, that is the effect of that is that uh, a congressman can say spend less time raising money. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if we still have say Citizens United that's still playing an active role on the sidelines, impacting media, does that really affect the need for money and the amount of time that a candidate is going to spend? Uh, you know, trying to get elected if they still have millions and millions of dollars coming into their districts? So there's a complex legal question as to how important Citizens United actually was. And I'm not a lawyer, so I don't want to plunge into it. I'm just going to note that, you know, it is not clear that Citizens United made that big a difference, right? The ability of corporations to spend money and stuff like that was already vast before that. And, you know, as long as we have this Supreme Court, it's difficult for me to imagine ways in which we could limit, you know, uh, we could could limit uh, campaign donations. We have now gotten to the point with the Roberts Court, right? Which is it's you know which in the rule in the rules about the governor of Virginia who was was being bribed, right? It was being bribed, like it was being bribed. When you take a when you take a Rolex from from somebody and you and you then change your policy positions to benefit their company, you have been bribed, yeah. right? And he was convicted of bribe and he should have gone to jail. And the Ro- Roberts Court throughout all the convictions basically said that giving the guy a Rolex was actually an exercise in freedom of speech. You know, like yes, well. You know, in some definition of that word, I guess that's true, but I'm pretty sure that's a bribe. <laughs> what we did was we legalized, you know, that court legalized bribery. And so as long as we, you know, we're going to have a 6-3 court that's basically dedicated to that proposition, well, you know, there are limitations to what we can do. And so what I would what I would say is let's find ways to work around the problem until we can fix them, until we can fix, you know, that like ridiculous, uh, le- those ridiculous legal holdings. So that's going to take a long, long time and take a generation. So we have to figure out other ways to do things now. Super interesting. Um, you know, Gautam, as we as we start to close out here, you know, looking ahead to, to the election and to just sort of the nature of American discourse here uh, in our country, are there certain 
authors, writers, uh, books that you would recommend to our audience, right? The people, th this, this book club is really catered to helping America be kind to one another again, to talk to each other one, to one another again. Like as someone who's on this journey myself, trying to open up my horizons and speak to people who may have different ideologies than I do, uh, even if there may not be consistent ideologies, as, as you pointed out, um, what, what do you recommend to our, to our, our membership here in, in, in terms of future reading? So going into the election, let me, I, I love to recommend books, so I can just do that for forever. But um, Please, go ahead. <laughs> going into the election, uh, the president, uh, I think you're frozen. Hello? Rajiv, can you hear me? Yep, I got you. Go okay. ahead. Okay. <laughs> going into the election, if there's one book everybody should read going into a presidential election, it's uh, John Dickerson's new book, The Hardest Job in the World, which really talks about the presidency and how to think about the presidency. It's a great book. Uh, you know, Dickerson's a phenomenal reporter and, a really, and, and, and it turns out a really good author. And uh, and it and it's and it's incredibly well researched. Like I, I was just in awe of the level of research that he had done. So going to the election, I would say if you you know like really think through that and and take grab a hold of that. Um, but beyond that is this question of of you know not just the presidency, but this question of as how do we reach out to other people? How do we live our lives with other people? Like how do we you know how do we how do we ourselves become people who are worthy? You know, how do we live lives that are that are that are worthy in the sense of of the incredible privileges which we are afforded by being American citizens? Um, if there's one book I'd recommend that I think has more on that than any other, it's actually by Clay Christensen, which which we talked who oh. we talked about earlier. Uh, it's called How How Should I Measure My Life? How Should You Measure Your Life? Right. And so Clay was you know a brilliant intellect, but he was also a deeply wise man. And so one of Harvard Business School's like weirder traditions is that at the end of the, the last class of every semester, a professor, the professor is supposed to give their like wisdom for the students going forward in their lives. I always found this weird because I was, you know, I was the same age as my students. I was like, guys, it's not clear to me that I've got a lot of wisdom that you, that you, you guys don't already have. I mean, I would do it because I believe in tradition, but, but it felt weird. But when Clay Christensen gives you wisdom, you should listen. And, um, and so Clay, uh, Clay gave this talk at the end of his class every semester and students would, you know, would come in, they would be like, they would say like, this changed my, like hearing this talk changed my life. And they would bring their, their, you know, their spouses and their parents and have them sit in the aisles so they could hear what Clay had to say. Right. And so then Clay wrote this as an article in Harvard Business Review and it became the most downloaded article in the history of Harvard Business Review. And then he wrote this book. And this book is, and it's specifically, I mean, I would think for this audience, we got a lot of people who are into business, right? And it's kind of yeah. like how a businessman, a business person thinks about how you be a good person. Right. And how do you apply the way of thinking that we're all taught to use in business to analyze your own life and, 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 how, to, and how you want to live? Right. And how do you think about like, so, I mean, I, I, my, 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 uh, my students, I, I always say things and my students like make fun of me because they, they quote, quote it back to me. But so I don't think I'm not quoting the book here, but this is, I think, something you would take away from the book. My, and my line, the way I paraphrase it is sure. um, don't tell me about your priorities. Like people always say my priorities to this priority is that I don't care. Don't tell me about your priorities. Show me your calendar, right? Tell me what you spend your time on and I'll tell you what your priorities are. Um, and so that is like, you know, so the, how, you know, how should I measure, how should you measure your life? Does a great job of making people think through like, how do they spend their time? Because how they spend their time is their priorities. That was our talk with Gotham Makunda, host of the NASDAQ's World Reimagined podcast and author of Indispensable. 
when leaders really matter. If you'd like to participate in one of our live interviews and ask questions of our authors, subscribe to our LinkedIn page or YouTube channel for updates. We'll be hosting Mr. Jimmy Sony on February 24th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern to discuss his newest release, The Founders, a story of PayPal and the entrepreneurs who shaped Silicon Valley. It's going to be a great conversation on technology, society, and the future of our economy. Hope to see you soon.